With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 344. It's titled, Why You Should Care About Shadow Banking. Shadow banking is not something that I have spoken about specifically on the podcast, although we have discussed numerous investments and other vehicles that are a form of shadow banking. Cryptocurrency lending is shadow banking. Investing in a money market mutual fund is shadow banking. Lending or borrowing on peer-to-peer lending platforms is shadow banking. There are many different types. In fact, shadow banking makes up half of the global financial system, according to the Financial Stability Board. What exactly is shadow banking? Shadow banks are entities that perform some function of traditional banks but they are much less regulated. They don't offer depository insurance in case they go bankrupt. Nor do the shadow banks maintain accounts at the central bank, so they don't get access to central bank funding in its role as lender of last resort. The Financial Stability Board, which is an international body that monitors and makes recommendations about the global financial system, It's made up of treasury and central bank officials around the world. They do an annual report on what they call non-bank financial intermediation, NBFI, which is a fancy name for shadow banking. In their most recent report, they pointed out that the NBFI sector, or shadow banks, account for 49.5% of the global financial system. That's at year-end 2019 and it compares to 42% in 2008. Shadow banks have a number of functions that they play in the economy. The first is as savings and investment vehicles, an investment in a money market mutual fund, a topic that we discussed in depth in episode 333, how the COVID shock nearly destroyed the financial system. That's an investment in a shadow bank. It's a savings vehicle, but it's not FDIC insured. There is no depository insurance. Hedge funds are shadow banks. Fixed income funds are a type of shadow bank because they're lending to corporate entities outside of the traditional banking sector. The primary risk for this savings and investment function of shadow banks are runs on the banks. If depositors decide that they want to pull their money quickly, And that stress can cascade through the system. And that was one of our discussion points in episode 333, how the central banks had to step in and provide liquidity and guarantees for money market accounts so that they were protected and there was not a bank run. A second economic function of shadow banks is lending. 
And with any type of lending activity, there's credit risk, defaults. And there's liquidity risk because oftentimes the shadow bank is borrowing short-term and lending long-term. And again, they could be susceptible to bank runs. Example of shadow bank lending activities is supply chain finance, where companies borrow from the supply chain financier to produce and ship goods. We'll give a detailed example of that in a few minutes. Prime brokers that lend to hedge funds is an example of a shadow bank. Non-bank home mortgage lenders, like Quicken Loans, which is one of the largest mortgage originators in the U.S., is not a bank. It's a non-bank. It's a shadow bank. Payday loan companies are a type of shadow bank. In the most recent financial stability report, they list out a number of financial innovations that fall under the shadow bank category, the non-bank financial intermediation category, peer-to-peer lending, a topic we discussed in episode 304 and 216 with Lending Club and Upstart, examples of peer-to-peer lending, leveraged loans and collateralized loan obligations. Leveraged loans are non-investment grade bank loans that are syndicated and sold in the marketplace. And then those loans are packaged together into a collateralized loan obligation. This was a topic that we discussed in episode 305, Are Banks Safe? Particularly, are CLOs or collateralized loan obligations safe? Crowdfunding platforms are another financial innovation of the past decade such as Peer Street, where you as an investor can lend through Peer Street to home borrowers, particularly those on a short-term basis that want to fix up a home and flip it. Cryptocurrency lending, a topic we discussed in episode 339 on DeFi. That is also shadow banking. There are big tech and other corporate firms that are involved in shadow banking. Think Apple Pay. PayPal, in China, Alipay and WeChat Pay. Alipay has a billion users and handled $16 trillion in payments in 2019. That's 25 times more than PayPal. And we'll talk a little bit about shadow banking in China in this episode. Well, why should we care about shadow banks? Well, I suspect you participate in shadow bank activities in some form. If it's as simple as using PayPal or Apple Pay or holding your cash in a money market account, we should care because we can get attractive investment returns by investing in some of the shadow bank investment vehicles. But we should also care because there's risk. And we're going to look at some examples of some risky shadow banks that led to significant market losses. Shadow banks can be convenient to make a payment via Apple Pay or PayPal. That's convenient. Oftentimes, there can be lower fees because it's extremely competitive and there's new innovations in the fintech space all of the time. One of the oldest forms of shadow banking is supply chain finance. A survey of small manufacturers in the UK found that, on average, they receive payments on their orders 35 days after they're delivered. And so they need cash, and oftentimes they will 
borrow money in order to finance the production of those goods and services, and the lender basically have security in that bill of exchange or that receivable from those orders, those invoices that have been written for the specific orders. In the 19th century, there was a firm that started doing this. Now, initially, the manufacturer would sell these notes, these bills of exchange, to friends, families, customers. But in the early 1800s, a startup called Overend Gurney & Company specialized in raising short-term debt and then lending to these manufacturers. It was the largest by far in the 1860s. But there was a court ruling that said that Overend couldn't collect repayments from one of its debtors. And that led Overend to fail. This was in 1866, and it led to a huge financial crisis, similar to the way Lehman Brothers failed in 2008, and that led to huge financial consequences for the global economy. In 1866, just based on the failure of Overend, a shadow bank in the supply chain finance area, a fifth of the banks headquartered in London went bust in the panic. Global trade fell by 17% as the panic spread. The insolvency of a supply chain finance shadow bank also occurs today. In March 2021, Greensill Capital, a 10-year-old UK and Australian-based supply chain finance company, filed for insolvency. And that caused its former clients to struggle because they were reliant on this company. Now, Greensill Capital would lend the money, take invoices as security, and then package those bills and invoices into bond-like investments and sell those investments to investors that were looking for an attractive return. The notes were guaranteed against default by insurance companies. That was the structure. They lend to the manufacturers or other entities They take that receivable, package it into a note, and sell it to investors. It didn't quite work out because Greensill Capital's main insurer, Bond Credit & Company, which is a Sydney-based subsidiary of Tokyo Marine, decided that they had too much exposure to Greensill. Bond & Credit Company fired their underwriter for exceeding risk limits with regard to Greensill, and as a result, BCC wouldn't guarantee any more notes of Greensill Capital. That made it difficult for Greensill to issue new notes. One of the major borrowers from Greensill was Sanjeev Gupta's Metals Group, GFG Alliance, and its trading arm, Liberty Commodities. If Greensill couldn't sell any more notes because they couldn't get a guarantee, That sent GFG scrambling to keep their business solvent, and eventually GFG defaulted on its debt to Greensill. Later, the Financial Times found that some of the invoices that were packaged into these notes by Gupta's Liberty Commodities Trading Group were purportedly fake. It was for products sold to four European metal businesses, one being KME Germany. Its chief executive, Ulrich Becker, said, we do not trade with them in the past. We are not trading with them now, and we will not trade with them. 
We are copper producers and don't even know what we would have bought from them. The UK's Serious Fraud Office opened an investigation into Sanjeev Gupta's metal empire, which had borrowed up to $1.2 billion through Greensill. Who held these notes that Greensill sold? Several Credit Suisse funds. These funds were marketed to investors as being very low risk, guaranteed against losses with multiple layers of protection. When GHG defaulted, Credit Suisse froze distributions from the fund, and it appears that 4,000 investors that had invested upwards of $10 billion in these Credit Suisse funds will lose up to 25% of their capital. Not a low-risk investment, as it turns out. There's been bank failures related to this. An Italian bank, Aegis Banca, was declared insolvent and merged because they had significant exposure to investment products that were linked to these invoices that had been purchased by Greensill and packaged into notes. What's our takeaway from this? It seems like for Credit Suisse, these ultra-wealthy investors from Europe and Asia, there were pension funds invested in these Credit Suisse funds, publicly traded companies. It would be hard to figure this out. Anytime we do an investment, we have to be able to understand what is it, understand what supply chain finance is. Can we describe it? Be particularly concerned if the product is backed by some guarantee, because if it is or if it's over collateralized, that suggests that there's more underlying risk, but they're seeking a third party to provide a guarantee to reduce that risk. Another example of shadow banking that led to major losses is in the prime broker space, where brokerages lend money to hedge funds and to sophisticated investors that make up family offices. In this case, it was Archegos Capital Management, which was the family office by Bill Wang, who used to work for Julian Robinson's hedge fund. Wang went on to launch his own hedge fund, Tiger Asia Management, which grew to over $5 billion. Tiger Asia had big losses in the global financial crisis. In 2012, Tiger Asia Management and Wang paid $44 million to settle an enforcement action by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. In 2012, Wang closed Tiger Asia and opened his family office, Archegos Capital Management. It managed $10 billion of the family's wealth. Well, it turns out that Archegos was highly, highly leveraged five times leverage, and they were borrowing from multiple broker-dealers. And the broker-dealers did not know what exposure they had. They got cash as collateral, and then they sold Archegos what are known as total return swaps, where Archegos benefited from the returns of specific publicly traded stocks, but didn't have to put up much capital at all. The stock was a fairly concentrated position. And when they started to sell off, there were margin calls from the broker-dealers to get more cash from Archegos. And ultimately, when that cash wasn't forthcoming, the broker-dealers started selling the stock. And with so much selling by these broker-dealers, the stocks plummeted. The banks had major losses. Credit Suisse, 
who lost money with Greensill, looks like they will lose up to $5.4 billion. Nomura Securities, $2.9 billion. J.P. Morgan, potentially $10 billion. Just from one family office. Leo Raynard, the Fed governor, who chairs the Federal Reserve Committee on Financial Stability, said, The Archegos event illustrates the limited visibility into hedge fund exposures and serves as a reminder that available measures of hedge fund leverage may not be capturing important risk. The potential for material distress at hedge funds to affect broader financial conditions underscores the importance of more granular, higher-frequency disclosures. The Fed was caught unawares, as were, obviously, the prime brokers. The takeaway is leverage can be dangerous. There was not a sufficient margin of safety that these broker-dealers had. The leverage to Archegos was just too high. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have to be aware if we're participating in shadow banking activities by doing some type of direct lending or peer-to-peer lending or some type of crowdfunding real estate, what is the amount of leverage so that we know if things don't go as well, if there's a sell-off, how much protection are we going to have? I've done direct lending in the past on real estate, an apartment building where we have effectively served as the bank. In that case, the borrower put 50% down. When we've done it to facilitate the sale of our farm, the borrower put 30% down. The real estate is much less volatile than stocks or cryptocurrency lending, which can be highly leveraged. The borrowed has to put more collateral down, but when you have a sell-off in cryptocurrency like we're seeing now, that potentially isn't even enough margin of safety. We need to be very, very careful of the amount of leverage being used. A final example of shadow banking that caught my attention is from a paper titled Optimal Shadow Banking that was released earlier this year by Liu and Zhang. It was focused on the shadow banking activity in China that has seen huge growth. In 2008, China's shadow banking made up about 0.2 trillion U.S. dollars, or 4% of China's gross domestic product. By the end of 2018, it was 7.8 trillion U.S. dollars, 61% of GDP. 
Shadow banking in China is a little different from the other examples I've given today because it's actually very bank-centric. Most of the shadow banking activity is being initiated by commercial banks. It's off-balance sheet banking. One commentator just called it the shadow banking in China is just in the shadow of banks. What's interesting about this is you know, some believe, well, the Chinese regulators aren't aware of what's going on with all these banks actually lending off balance sheet to where they're not really official loans on the banks, but they've set up some other entity. These co-authors believe, no, China is aware of this. All the major banks in China are state-owned enterprises. And the regulators keep track of what's going on. One of the things that China regulators have done and the Chinese central bank is they've tightened credit for traditional banking, raised rates, but not so much for the shadow banking industry, which seems puzzling that China wants the shadow banking area to grow while trying to hold back the credit expansion within the traditional banking sector. And the co-authors believe the reason why is local governments intervene in the credit decisions by commercial banks to finance projects that might not be economically viable. Given the commercial banks are state-owned enterprises and would more than likely be backstopped by the Chinese government, Chinese central banks, if they got into trouble, that's not the case with the shadow banks. They don't necessarily have those same protections. And so the thought is that for the shadow bank lending, that the Chinese banks are more careful. They're less likely to be influenced by local governments to fund an uneconomical project because it's off balance sheet. They want to make sure they get paid back. And as a result, more viable projects are being financed and China likes that. In some ways, it's more capitalistic. It's an intriguing turn of events that the banks are having to go off balance sheet to actually have more credit discipline in their lending activities, with China encouraging that by keeping rates that these shadow banks have to pay to access capital lower than the traditional banking sector. It shows that shadow banking isn't always what it's seen. But shadow banking has been around for many, many years. It's proliferating with the innovations in fintech, there are more and more shadow banks out there. As investors, we have to understand what we're investing in. What's the downside? What's the upside? What are the protections? There are a great deal more protections for money market mutual funds, retail money market mutual funds, as well as regulations to help to prevent bank runs. That's not necessarily the case with perhaps some of the other shadow bank activities. I think it's important to experiment, to try them out, but not to get overexposed to one particular product. In episode 339, we looked at cryptocurrency lending and we featured BlockFi. I went ahead and opened an account at BlockFi to experiment. And I outlined the risk there, the risk of a cryptocurrency sell-off, even though the loans are over-collateralized. There's the risk of hacking, a risk I didn't cover that occurred with BlockFi shortly after releasing that episode and after I invested was just stupid mistakes. Apparently, BlockFi, in connection with a March promotional giveaway where they promised to pay some of their clients rewards for their trading activity, 
the rewards were supposed to be in stable coin. Instead, they mistakenly paid the reward in Bitcoin. Huge mistake. One user said that they got a payment of 701 Bitcoin instead of 701 GUSD, which is a stable coin backed by the dollar. That's a difference of roughly $29 million versus getting $700. That sent BlockFi scrambling to try to recover this Bitcoin, sending threatening letters to those that had tried to withdraw it. It's an example in the evolving shadow banking space that there's risk, even if it's just dumb mistakes. BlockFi says that they're fine, that they still are, are very well capitalized, but we'll see. It certainly caught my attention. But that's what shadow banking is. It's financial activities outside of traditional banking that isn't backstopped by the lender of last resort. The central banks try, and other regulators try to keep apprised of what's going on, but we don't know what risk there are. And if there's bank runs within the shadow banking space, those type of bank runs actually did occur during the great financial crisis and probably would have occurred during the recession associated with the pandemic had central banks not stepped in extremely aggressively with money markets in the corporate bond space, which could have seen runs on, on those funds. So we need to be wary and understand what it is we're investing in and do the best due diligence that we can, recognizing sometimes there's fraud. And that's why we diversify to protect against things that we just couldn't foresee. Because those things will arise on occasion. That then is episode 344. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, becoming a better investor, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's episode. I share the notes and research materials that I use to prepare it and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. When you sign up for The Insider's Guide, you'll get my free guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. This is a summary of the key points from my book by the same name. The second way I can help is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. There's over 1,000 Money for the Rest of Us Plus members. They continue as members because they get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style they can understand. Here's some of what you get with Plus Membership. Global multi-asset class portfolio examples. A monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you keep your emotions in check. An exclusive member-only podcast called Money for the Rest of Us Plus, as well as an ad-free version of the regular podcast. And with both of those podcasts, you get written transcripts. Plus Membership includes best-in-class video lessons, portfolio building tools and templates, as well as access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You'll be able to interact with other members in the member forum and ultimately get the tools and the community you need to feel confident in your investing. Plus, membership is a voice of calm and reason amidst the chaos. 
We'd love to have you as a member. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.